again, this is Jerz Lai, Chief Strategist at Tricio Investment Advisors, and speaking with our Chief Economist, John Carvely again. Hi, John. Hi, Jerry. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you. The topic this time around is that we've debated for many years, and that's currency forecasting. How do you do it? Why you do it? Why even try? And before we go too much further into this, I would like to say to all our listeners, there are three books that I think everybody should basically be using where if you're looking at economics and trying to do any sort of market analysis. The first is obviously The Investor's Guide to Economic Fundamentals, written by John Cavalli, right? <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. <laughs> it's still on Amazon, John. You can still buy yeah. it, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 33, 35 pounds and some loose change on Amazon. Okay. Okay. The other book, and this is really going to go over most people's head, but it's something that if you're serious about doing any sort of currency work, it's actually this book or something like it is pretty essential. And that would be the Foreign Exchange Dealer's Handbook, which I think came out in the early 90s. And again, that's an Amazon. And this book isn't for everyone, but it does teach you basically how to calculate forward rates, what swap rates are all about, all that sort of stuff, which most people never look at, to be blunt. But they really should know because that's the backbone of foreign exchange markets. And in my view, the backbone of foreign exchange trends. It basically all comes down to rates. How much are you paying for currency to hold it? How much are you paying for currency to sell it in terms of interest rate differentials? And the last book that I would suggest anybody who's interested in currencies and currency forecasting or hedging would be a book written by a gentleman called Michael Rosenberg, who's had a heck of a lot of experience in FX shops around the world. And it's called Currency Forecasting, a guide to fundamental and technical models of exchange rate determination, methods and models for predicting exchange rate movements. That's a heck of a long title. Effectively, it says what it, you know, it does what it says in a tin. He tries to go over a bunch of different models and say this kind of works, this kind of doesn't work, and uses a lot of other different people to, you know, in, in the articles inside the book. So I, I, I bought that when it came out and I looked at it and said, you know what, this is kind of useful. It's in the kind of useful category. So th those are the three books. All right, John, having said that, right, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the best foreign exchange economists in the world in my career. That includes you, of course, and your team when we work together at American Express Bank. However, I always think that economics, you know, the way we looked at things is think fundamental, trade technical. So the fundamentals gives you the broad overview and the broad brushstrokes and sometimes the quick spikes when you're looking at emerging markets or big changes in fundamentals. But in terms of trying to make money and or control risk, chart points always seem pretty necessary to me. What's your take on this? I think you're probably right, Jerry. Um, I'm, I'm quite humble about the ability to, my ability anyway, to, to forecast uh, currencies. Um, I think currencies are harder than other markets. Um, even when you look back at uh, currency movements, I think it's sometimes not always easy to explain them. Whereas I think uh, usually you can explain what's happened with stock markets and bond markets. You can say stock, mar stock markets gone up because interest rates went down and profits went up and the economy was strong. Sometimes you look back at currency movements and you say, well, I'm not quite sure why that happened. Um, so you, I think so you see that because... something happened, but the trigger or catalyst or whatever traders were thinking or corporates or hedgers or whatever may not be that clear. Yeah, I, and particularly for relatively, for me as a fundamentalist, relatively small movements. So if you're talking about a move of, say, 5%, uh, that can, I think that can just be flows in the market. Now, that's already big for, for a lot of people uh, you know, in the markets. Right. I think, though, for investors in to more long-term investors who are thinking, trying to think about currencies and how they might impact on 
portfolios over the long term. That's where fundamentals, I think, can help. And let's but, face it, I, do, I mean, one, one thing has always amazed me is so many people so think insurances don't matter. And yet when you talk to fund managers or when you're running your own funds or working at a bank, you know, running proprietary stuff, the, the impact of currency moves is actually embraced by a lot of fund managers. They don't actually hedge their equity portfolio if they're using foreign uh, stock holdings. If they're using bond holdings, sometimes they use that, in my experience, to express the currency view, where they actually want to be exposed to that currency risk on the view that it presents an opportunity. Um, have you had that similar experience where basically hedging out the currency isn't the automatic thing that some people think happens all the time? I think that's exactly right. I think it, it, it's different really for investors in stocks compared with bonds. I think if you're invested in stocks, there is a general presumption that uh, if a currency, if the currency goes down for that country, um, then the chances are the stocks will do relatively better uh, as a result. I, I think um, we're both pointing at Japan on this, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas when you talk about bonds, it's not necessarily true. And, and, and bonds, of course, uh, influence currencies uh, quite a lot, which yes. we'll probably come on to in a moment. Okay. Now, let's, let's go back in history for people listening with us. My, my, my first, I guess, view on history of FX markets would be, one, you had the whole Bretton Woods thing after World War II, right? But then you had the U.S. abandoning the gold standard, and that kind of shook the currency markets. And then you had the U.S. and Germany and some other countries doing some accords in the mid-80s. Is that kind of your record of ancient history for FX markets? Yeah, I mean, we had fixed exchange rates, of course, until the early 70s, uh, when the US uh, sort of pulled out of the Bretton Woods agreement. Then you got floating currencies, you got a lot of volatility in those years because we had high inflation, particularly in the US and the UK. So, so you saw that. Then there were some attempts to to sort of refix currencies. Um, yeah, we saw that in the UK with uh, shadowing the Deutschmark in the 1980s and then uh, the exchange rate mechanism. Um, we also saw the Plaza Accord that you mentioned, which was an attempt to sort of uh, influence currencies as well. Um, the, 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 I think people wanted to go to floating currencies because it, it gave, the, gave governments the flexibility. Uh, and then they worried that there was too much flexibility and too much difficulties. And I think the pendulum swung back a bit more towards trying to fix currencies. A lot of emerging markets went down that route and it's mostly disastrous. I'm, I'm thinking of the Asian crisis or Argentina or Mexico. Um, I think now most uh, most countries are in favor of um, floating currencies. Obviously, the euro is a special case because uh, they're trying to build a, a European country, in effect. Um, so they want to have a, a single currency. But it's 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 been a, a, a rocky ride, I would say. And yes, and, and I think we made a career out of the rocky ride at times, didn't we? Because I'm looking back on, on what you're saying. I remember the dirty snakes where people try to people central banks and governments try to control currency moves within some sort of range. But yeah, you're right. The only fixed exchange regime that I think works, you know, thumbs up no matter what, would be Hong Kong, right? Yeah, and that works because they are so rigid in keeping a very, very strong fiscal position and very high reserves. Uh, and they also, it was tested almost to destruction after 1997, when the rest of Asia was in deep trouble, all devaluing. Hong Kong stuck with it, even through a huge recession, massive fall in house prices, but they stuck with it. And, and that uh, that's really established it. I remember in desperation, I had a long French franc short Hong Kong dollar position during the Asian crisis. And it was one of those things where you, you know, only a currency trader sitting at a desk would do something as silly as that. You know what I mean? Where it made sense at the time, but looking back, you just go, why was I wasting my time? <laughs> 
trying mm. to make three pips. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yes, so we have a lot of regimes and now we pretty much broadly accept that currencies should trade in a more or less free manner, right? You do have central banks and in the US, I guess it's the treasury that discusses their currency policy. You, you do have some issues now and then at certain levels where you see an ECB official speak about not being comfortable about where the euro is or things like that, correct? I guess for the US, the last one was back in the early or mid 90s where they expressed a desire for a strong dollar. And since then they've had a, in my, I guess this is my understanding, they've had some sort of pension for trotting out a, you know, some sort of treasury official to say, yes, we still believe in you know, strong dollar policy, whatever the heck that means, correct? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we've had a lot of, and we still do have a lot of what I would call dirty floating, where you, you get jawboning like that, you get um, uh, using foreign exchange reserves to try to move a currency around. Obviously, a lot of Asian countries have been doing that for the last 20 years, uh, trying to stop their currencies being too strong by accumulating reserves. And you also get interest rate movements to, to try to manage currencies as well. Uh, so so there's, there's quite a lot of an attempt to, to kind of push currency where countries or central banks want it. Um, but I think there's, generally speaking, a reluctance to fix currencies now. Okay, so in terms of what we're just talking about, the dirty float sort of thing, I would say China is perhaps the biggest player in that market now? Yeah, China's a huge player, obviously, because it's such a big uh, trading country. Um, and they, I don't think they're doing a particularly dirty float at the moment. They certainly used to back in the very early 2000s. Uh, they did keep the currency low. Obviously, they accumulated three or four trillion dollars of reserves at that point um, in order to stop the currency rising. So there they were they were really playing the export game, if you like, right. which is what most Asian countries have done at some stage or another, deliberately keeping their currency low. But now I would say, I mean, the, the, the renminbi has been quite strong. Uh, and I think that that actually reflects the flows. There's, there's, there's money flowing into China, investments. Uh, they've clamped down on flows out, of course. So um, they're, they're trying to restrict capital outflows. Uh, right. And that's something to keep the, the renminbi, um, you know, relatively strong. Okay, good. Thank you, John. So currency forecasting, and I'm going to basically use my sharp needle here and use the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Greenspan, back in 2004. I don't know if you remember his speech in March, where he basically said, I'm going to try to read it here, is basically akin to tossing a coin. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he's being very humble there too, I think. I don't I don't totally agree with that, though. I think you can sort of, if you like, mark out some points on the map, roughly speaking. I mean, where I would where I start is trying to have an idea in my mind of, of where the sort of long term equilibrium for a currency might be. Now, I'm not what, what do you use for that sort of thing? Interest rates, flows? Yeah. So, well, it actually a combination of things. And I would say it's more art than science. So. I mean, you'd be familiar, obviously, with the so-called purchasing power parity approach, where you just look at relative prices. So you can... Is that like the old McDonald's index? Yeah, that type of thing. But it wouldn't be just uh, Big Macs, of course. It would have to be across a whole range. Right, Big Mac index. That's right. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, the OECD and other, other organizations publish what they think are purchasing power parities, where they've done some detailed work trying to compare prices. But then that, generally speaking, that doesn't work in my my view as, a, as an equilibrium because some countries always have stronger currencies than that, particularly, for example, 
uh, Germany and Japan, they're nearly always stronger than that because, right. because they are very good at trading. Um, but the UK is also typically stronger than that um, because it's... Sorry, by trading, you mean that they, they make things that people want, they have good ex they have big positive exports, things like that, right? Exactly. That they, Their manufacturing sector is so strong, they're, they're so good at exporting. Um, the UK is another one, though, that doesn't tend to trade at its PPP because it tends to have a lot of capital inflows, investments and so on. Uh, so I take the PPP as kind of a starting point, but then I would adjust it for the trade performance and investment flows, and that might give me an idea. But then I also look back over the picture for the currency over the last 30, 40 years. Uh, and That's long-term, John. <laughs> yeah, really, I'm looking at the way it swings around because I'm not expecting the currency to go to the equilibrium and stay there at any time. If you look at currencies, they tend to swing from one extreme to the other. They don't often stay in that sort of middle area. They're usually either at uh, the high end of the, of the chart or at the low end. They don't spend much time in the middle, which is where the equilibrium would have to be. But once I've got that idea of an equilibrium, I mean, and, and to put some numbers on it for a moment, um, you know, I would see equilibrium for the sterling dollar as something like 150, maybe 160. Um, okay. And I would see dollar euro as something like 125, maybe 130. So those sorts of levels would be, is, is my idea of equilibrium. And, and then I try to explain why we're not there at the moment. And that's when I would look at trade a little bit, but mostly I'd look at interest rates and economic growth. So if your economic growth is strong and your interest rates are high relative to the US, uh, then you'd expect to be stronger than that equilibrium and vice versa. And at the moment, of course, it's vice versa. Most countries are, are weak compared to those, uh, compared to that equilibrium level because the US economy is strong because US interest rates are higher. Okay, so I, I assume you do basically, I, I know the way you work in some, to some extent, where you basically have access to a huge amount of data and you do a lot of spreadsheet number crunching and estimates and growth forecasts and things like that. But would you say that 70% of your job in terms of forecasting rates and 30% would be quote unquote the gut feel or intuition or your judgment, something like that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you, you, a lot of the forecasting involves judgment because, uh, and especially bearing in mind that, you know, there's, there's some very clever people in, in the markets, especially in the foreign exchange markets, including yourself, Jerry, who have You've been very uh, kind. <laughs> And, they're, and so they're, they're always anticipating this. They, they are trying to sniff out trends, particularly in economic growth and interest rates, really ahead of everybody else. Uh, so I'm, I might think, well, interest rates are probably going to go up. But if the market's thinking that too, then it'll already be in the exchange rate. Uh, that, that's a problem that Greenspan basically pointed to in his 2004 speech, was that yeah. the foreign exchange market is so quick to price in information yeah. that trying to make meaningful profits and or forecasting besides what the spot rate and the forward rates tell you is really difficult. Exactly. And that's where I think your your more uh, tactical, technical approach um, comes in. Uh, and let me Basically back. trend following, yes. Where, where yeah. we try to say information's come into the market, the move is going to be from A to B, and if you can identify it, then you might as well just go with the flow rather than try to say the market's wrong, the market's wrong, the market's wrong, and lose a lot of money. Right. I mean, we, we, it's exactly what you started off saying. You've got to be humble and just accept the fact that everything you thought may be wrong and the currency just might be going from here to there until you know everybody agrees with you at some stage. 
which right. may take years, it may take months, it may take days. And it's really frustrating when you get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. as, as you as you know, as, and I know, right? Um, because you, you know that you're, quote unquote, you're right, just the market is going the other way and you've got to respect it sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say, you know, as, as a fallback, during the Asian crisis, I thought it was you and your team did a hugely valuable job for all our customers and dealers and traders um, at American Express Bank because you identified that this crisis was important and that it was getting out of control. Whereas on the dealing desk, I was sitting there going, well, this can't happen because if it does happen, it'll be really, really horrible. And when it did happen, we just had to pull back and say, yeah, this is horrible because everything was going all over the place in terms of risk management. Yeah, that's where you get the, the sort of reflexivity where the currency goes down and that impacts the economy and that impacts the currency again. I mean, particularly, obviously, if the currency goes down, you tend to get higher inflation. And if that looks like getting really out of control, uh, then the currency goes down even more. So um, and then, of course, in many Asian countries that tied into a financial crisis. Uh, so the banks were going down because of the exchange rate problem. Uh, so and this basically creates that vicious cycle, right? Where things get bad and then they get worse and then they get even worse. Yeah. And the only way out of that is uh, real fiscal austerity, um, a you know, tight budget, as it were, um, and accepting a recession for a while. Um, and then so the exchange rate goes down and you bring the inflation out of the system and then you can stabilize. Okay. That, that's basically the thing that people have to accept. Sometimes you have to take the tough medicine to actually get to where you need to be. Yes. In terms of currency forecasting, though, which is what you know we're going to try to stick to for the next few minutes, <laughs> it's if you had a choice of one or two tools to use, what would you use? And and just to preempt you, I'd be using interest rate differentials as as a guide point, both from the money market side, forward forwards and things like that, as well as two year swaps, five year swaps, or interest rates, and the ten year spreads between currents between different uh, markets. So dollar, ten year. Treasury note yield versus uh, the German 10-year Bund yield, for example, and try to say, how do I get paid for holding a currency or do I have to pay to short a currency? And in my view, usually if you're holding a currency that has quote unquote, you know, value and it's paying you money, then that currency would tend to appreciate over a currency that even maybe as, as valuable as the Euro or the Sterling, but it has a much lower rate. And so the yield differentials favor holding dollars. I know that sounds really simple, but that seems to kind of work. What do you think? Yeah, and I think it does kind of work. Um, with emerging countries, that'll work for a long time and then suddenly not work. Yes, that's what, that's what I said. The, you know, the, the core markets are major markets that have credibility. Emerging yeah. markets is slightly different. That's right. I, I mean, one of the... One of the problems is that, especially with emerging markets, interest rates will often be higher than in the US, but that also has a risk premium involved. So really you're picking up the risk premium uh, to some extent. Um, and at some point, of course, you know, that risk premium is there for a reason. It's because actually the country is more volatile and the exchange rate may go down. But I'm very much with you on the interest rate thing. I think it is relative interest rate differentials. And I would particularly focus on the long end. The, okay. piece, the piece I would probably add um, but this doesn't really help in the very short term, it's any more of a long term thing, is to try to look at real interest rates. Um, so if you, if you, and I would look at real long term interest rates, so trying to compare 10 year real yields with 10 year real yields in another country. Now, we, these days, of course, we have some inflation indexed yields, which can help. 
although they can be distorted as we see in, in the UK. Right. You can also simply take the conventional yields and, uh, and then subtract the inflation. Difficulty there is what inflation rate are we going to subtract because uh, the current inflation rate might not continue. So you've got to take a view on that. But right. if you that actually, if, if I think that the real 10 year yield in the US is higher than that in Germany, for example, okay. then I would expect the US dollar to be strong. And so, so that would come into your judgment or your model at some stage, basically yeah. real rates longer term, which, you know, who's paying me, who's not paying me, and what direction are they going to travel in? Well, that's where the judgment comes in. That's right. So that then goes back to the strength of the economy, because if, if one economy is stronger than other, another, you'd expect that real rates would tend to rise. Uh, so you're looking at sort of the dynamism of that country, um, not 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 necessarily over a sort of on a sort of 30 year long term horizon. You know, we know the US tends to go faster than Germany, for example. Um, but over the next, say, three to five years, will the US do much better in terms of growth than, than Europe, for example. Okay, that that's, that's actually adds a lot of substance to 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 the process, doesn't it? I think so. Um, I mean, as I say, it's tricky to handle the inflation side of, of that calculation. Um, right. But I, I think if you look at the last, uh, what, nine months or so, the, the euro has drifted downwards, and I think that's no real surprise. That's the, that's the US economy growing more strongly because of the fiscal stimulus. And the tendency for real interest rates to rise uh, relative to Germany over that period. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, John. And in terms of what you know, I, I tend to favor the technical side of the market. And you can always make fun of us for using trend lines or trying to predict the future while looking in the rearview mirror and all that sort of stuff. The, the only thing I would ever point to, though, is that "quote unquote" it works. And you know, the Fed studies done in the mid '90s. I think it was the St. Louis Fed published a few papers from some of the researchers saying some technical patterns seem to have validity in forecasting trends. All they were saying is that, you know, head and shoulders patterns, double tops, things like that. And that is so subjective, you know, in terms of one man's double top is another man's, I don't see it. But the, what I always took away from those was that trend following works until obviously it doesn't. So, you know, don't, don't fight the trend and try to think you're more clever than the market. And exactly what you said, stay humble and try to use common sense when it comes to currency trading. I think carry, you know, there's three types of ways of trying to make money. One of the best ones in my view is carry trade. So if you get paid for holding a currency and the currency isn't falling out of bed. So we're talking about traditionally before the COVID, Aussie dollar, Kiwi dollar, sterling before the whole Brexit referendum stuff. Those are currencies that paid you, which is good, right? Right. And you just go short of currencies that basically are very cheap to borrow in and that would usually be the Japanese yen and maybe the Swiss franc and obviously that doesn't work at all when you have things that shock the market so the Swiss e back in 2015 when the Swiss National Bank let the Swiss franc firm a lot that was a shock and obviously the yen gets firm now and then when they have crisis or whatever so it works until it doesn't work does that make sense yeah, and I think there's where you've got to be nimble. I mean, I, I can recall clients who were doing that, um, and then you get a big move, uh, perhaps even for a political reason, and uh, suddenly you can you can lose uh, you know several years worth of small gradual gains in, in one go. So I think and, be... and the worst thing is because you know it's a small gradual gain, you're probably leveraged, and your leverage may be very high, and that's when things get really silly in terms of managing risk. Because uh, you do occasionally get these days where you get huge movements, you know, just to quite relatively small movements in currencies and 
on a, on a daily basis, but you will occasionally get a day when you, when you get a really significant move, usually for a political reason. Yes, um, some some sort of surprise move, like the UK and Brexit referendum. That yeah. was a clear-cut example where most days you don't go from you know cable at 1.5 down to 1.32 and then breaking below there. That just doesn't happen until right. it does, right? Yeah, and that that uh, that night when the um, when the Brexit results were coming out, there was uncertainty you know, for some time there, and it was really swinging around in, in just a few minutes. Yeah, if I remember right, we actually had a two or three cent move higher where the sterling was going up because some early results suggested that it wouldn't happen, and then right. it you know did happen, so things went the other way quite quickly. Yeah. All right, John. Just my my last words for for our podcast listeners would be, I don't know if you remember this, John, there was a magazine called Corporate Finance. And yes. it was you and Sarah and Kevin, I believe, who were basically putting out the forecast from your team. And I tweak it a touch one way or another. And we did okay, we were always top 10. But the guy who always won was a corporate dealer from one of the banks. And he was quite clear in how he did it. He said, I look at the forward rates and then I change it one or 2% for whatever reason I think is you know valid. And that's it. He just looked at forward rates. And I kept thinking, that is so simple. <laughs> but that's what I think you and I would both agree would be a very humble approach, right? Well, of course, if you're looking at forward rates, in effect, you're looking at relative interest differentials. Correct. So you're there in a sense. But I think, and I think it is interest differentials and the changes in the directions there that really move currencies on a sort of, let's say on a sort of three, three month to 12 month horizon. I don't say day to day, but on a three month to 12 month horizon, I think it's those interest rates. That's exactly, that, that was exactly the horizon we had to put our forecast in for. Yeah. So right, looking back, maybe we should have done the same because I know we always tweaked it or maybe we, you know, for where we thought it should be. So uh, currency forecasting, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Fair <laughs> enough? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of long-term investors, it's, it's not worth attempting. But I think it is worth bearing in mind that the currency is relatively weak compared to its equilibrium. Chances are at some point in the next five or 10 years, not necessarily anytime soon, at some point in the next five or 10 years, it will swing back the other way. That's what we okay. can do. That, that's, that's a good thing to keep in mind. All right, John, any, any last words or are we good with that? I think we've, we've covered a lot. Um, I, I mean, I, I'll go back to being humble. Uh, I'll go back to being cautious, not betting the farm. Um, but nevertheless, I think it is important for investors to keep currencies in mind when they're investing. I wholeheartedly back exactly what you just said. Thank you, John. I really appreciate you uh, spending your time with me. And uh, we'll do this again. Take Great. care. Thanks, Jerry. Cheers. Bye. Bye for now.